Perfect. All right. Well, it's so good to have you, uh, Brother Stephen Collins. Here we are with all of our College of Career young people. You can see behind me. Is that awesome? We have a fantastic group here. Um, I haven't counted, but it looks close to be around 20 of us. And uh, we are so excited to have you. Um, I would like to start this meeting with prayer. If you don't mind, would you lead us in prayer? Absolutely. Mighty God in heaven, we worship you. We thank you for this day. All of your blessings to us for your goodness and mercy, God. I thank you for this wonderful group of students that are represented here tonight. God, I pray that you would overshadow this discussion, that you'd be with us, that your anointing would be present. God, I pray that there would be conviction, that there'd be a move of your spirit, God. Give us revelation. Give us understanding, God. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody say amen. Amen. All right. Awesome. Amen. Well, with that said, Brother... Uh, Collins, I'm going to basically turn it over to you for the first little bit, especially because I am not sure. Um, we, we were unable to purchase like the full thing. So I don't know if we're only going to have 40 minutes. I was also told that because it's the first meeting I've ever hosted, that I should get a full hour. But I don't know that for a fact. So I want you to take your liberty. Talk to us. Uh, talk to us about your book. Talk to us about whatever you have on your heart. If we have time for questions, I would love to ask a few. Um, but if not, we, we definitely want to get as much from you as we possibly can in these next uh, 30, 40 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a privilege to be here, and I really appreciate the invitation uh, to, to talk to you guys tonight. I would love it, love it, love it, love it if I was in the room and um, if I could see your faces and get introductions and um, hear a little bit about you and know your name and your story. But obviously, we don't have the opportunity to do that tonight. So um, just want to say that it's a privilege to be with you. And I really appreciate the invite. Um, you know, as I was praying and thinking about tonight, um, I had some thoughts about what I wanted to talk about. But I really felt, uh, first of all, let's, let's say that uh, I had a really good time in Bakersfield for 238 conference. How many had a good time for the conference? awesome yeah it was it was an awesome time and uh so one of the things that i discussed there in uh in bakersfield was on friday morning um don't die in the nest was the theme and um and that's something that the holy ghost i've been in the book of job for a number of months now and really feeling compelled by the holy ghost to kind of camp out there and um, and just study the book, because the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And there is so much, I think, that it, it's easy to go to Genesis and talk about the beginnings. And there are many uh, foundational things that we get from the book of Genesis. Um, but I feel like Job, because it's the oldest book in the Bible, there's something there. There are many things that we glean from that book. And so um, I didn't I didn't really elaborate um as much as, as we could have on Friday morning on that theme. But I think the theme itself is very relevant to this group in particular. Um, we use in our developmental process, we use the words dependence, independence, and interdependence to kind of frame the discussion of movement through development and um, dependence is the state of being in the house um, mom and dad raising you, putting food on the table, you go to church, your preacher preaches, your, 
your youth pastor teaches uh, everything you have and everything you are is being framed for you by somebody else. But there is this, there's almost this expulsion that happens out of the nest um, in just in our natural development where we become independent. And a lot of times kids, when they're, when they're experiencing this process, they feel a little bit uh, rebellious um, and parents even, even frame it that way. They're like, man, my kid's going crazy. They don't want to be home. They want to be at the mall. They want to be with their friends. Well, this is actually something God placed that desire to leave the nest and to begin to search and to explore and to try to figure out what we believe and what we know and to become independent, to be able to stand on our feet. Um, if I was in the classroom with you uh, today, I would, I would go to our book, um, which is Power to Become. If you don't have a copy of this, uh, if you'll reach out to me, um, I'll get you one or you can order one on the web. It's, a, it's an excellent framework for some of the things that we're talking about um, in, the, in the conversation uh, tonight. But there is a developmental chart that if you could see the chart, um, it beautifully frames the process of moving um, from the early stages of development into a place of maturity and being able to, to make decisions for yourself and to stand on your own two feet and, and find your way in the world to be seen and to be heard. And uh, that's a huge part of what the church is trying to do in your life. But that conversation that we had Friday about um, leaving the nest um, and being expelled out of the nest and not dying in the nest, I think is, is a very relevant conversation for this generation. Uh, this generation that is currently experiencing um, the, the highest age of people leaving home um, in our affluent, you know, postmodern culture. People can stay home a lot longer. They can delay marriage. They can delay, uh, they can delay going out and starting a job and, and building a life. And, and this, this applies to the church very well because um, a lot of people can have extended spiritual adolescence where, there is a delay in actually finding your way in ministry and learning uh, to hear from God for yourself and being able to find what you're intrinsically motivated to do in the kingdom of God. And it can be a really frustrating time uh, for the church, and it can be a frustrating time for parents, but it could also be a frustrating time for you. And so I want to kind of talk about that a little bit. And uh, I really you know, I would like to get into a lesson or a discussion some, but I really want to leave a lot of time for you guys to be able to ask questions and for you to be able to discuss as well. So I'm going to kind of walk through, I'm going to read a passage of scripture tonight, and I want to talk a little bit about something that God has been, relative to the, the man Job, God has been dealing with me about, and I think it will apply to us tonight. So we're going to begin the discussion in Job chapter 28. And we're going to read um, some verses of scripture there. So Job chapter 28, and we're going to start in verse one. And um, so Job says in Job chapter 28 and verse one, surely there is a vein for the silver and a place for gold where they find it. Iron is taken out of the earth and brass is molten out of the stone. So he's talking about refining precious metal and he's talking about the process of searching for it and, and finding it. And, and he said, he setteth an end to darkness and searcheth out all perfection, the stones of darkness and the shadow of death. So that's, this is a metaphor for what all of us are doing as we leave home, as we are expelled from the nest, we're searching for what is valuable in life. We're searching for what matters for what we're looking. He talks about here, all things are that are perfect. 
there is a there is a presentation that's made in the world that we're living in of things that are perfect that the aesthetic beauty of an individual uh, makeup cosmetics all of those things that are fixated on what is perfect the stones of darkness the shadow of death the flood breaks out from the inhabitants and even the waters forgotten of the foot they are dried up they are gone away from men as for the earth, out of it cometh bread, and under it is turned up as it were fire. So he's talking about the process of pulling bread out of the ground. Well, we understand, if you understand farming, you know that to get to the process of refined bread, you have to go all the way back to tilling the dirt and, and taking out the stones and taking out the clutter and then dropping the seed into the ground and then watering the seed and then allowing the process of time and development and maturation to bring the seed up to the surface. And then... Well, then it's wheat and then we have to cut it down and then we have to take it to the we have to take it to the to the threshing floor and we have to beat the wheat and then we separate the wheat from the chaff. Jesus talks about this and then we we take it and we get a stone and we grind it and we break it up into to flour. And then we begin to uh, we begin to work the process of kneading the dough and heating the oven and getting we've got to get the firewood and you've got to light the fire and you've got to heat the oven and and then finally you have bread. And so we we go to O Charlie's or Ruby Tuesdays or Applebee's or whatever it is and and they bring out the hot bread and we take it for granted that somebody actually thought about all of that that, that process. But this, what he's talking about here, he's talking about looking for gold and looking for beauty and the process of pulling bread out of the earth and under it is turned up as it were fire that under the bread is the fire and the stones of it are the place of sapphires and they have dust of gold. There is a path which no fowl knoweth, which the vulture eye, the vulture's eye hath not seen. The lion's whelps have not trodden it, nor the fierce lion passed it by. And so I guess if I were to frame what we want, what we, we're going to talk about tonight is the idea that there is a path that no fowl knows. And when we think about um, the fowl, when we think about the lion and the and the the adder and the and the the vulture and the fox and the coyote, they are scavengers. They come and they come and consume what has fallen by the wayside. And Job is talking here. Uh, in an incredible place of revelation that if, if you refine all human searching and everybody's searching, we're all looking for the perfect spouse. We're looking for the perfect job, a career. We're looking for um, something in life that is going to satisfy us, that is going to make us happy, that is going to give us permanence. Um, and, and really, we, we, we lock our doors, we secure our lives, we do everything that we can to try our best to preserve our existence, but life is a vapor. And so he's, Job is talking poetically here about the search for meaning, the search for value. And every culture has a different value system. The culture of the church is a value system. The culture of the world has a value system. And, and so in the searching from the beginning of time until now, men and women, great men and women, and average men and women have searched they're looking, they're looking um, at the end of the rainbow. We pass the rainbow, we see the beauty, and we think, what, what lies at the end of the rainbow? We turn over rocks. We search caves and canyons. We go to the Grand Canyon. We go to far-flung places of the world, and we're searching for meaning. We're searching for value. And we scuba dive and we snorkel and we're looking for the mysteries of the universe and the deepest parts of the ocean. And in the cosmos, we, we get in 
in, in great, you know, rocket ships and we travel to other places in search of the mysteries of the world. So Job's saying that everybody's searching for the gold, for the silver, for the hid treasure. They're pulling bread out of the earth. Um, he said, but there's a path. There's a way. There is a way to travel that no foul has ever seen. And so the nature of life is that is, it is constantly breaking down. It's constantly, as a matter of fact, the, the paradox of life is that the minute that you're born, you begin to die. As you enter into the world, as the baby enters in with the little, the little blue outfit or the little pink bow and everybody's excited and they're euphoric and they're rejoicing. It is at that point that death begins. And that is a struggle that we all face. So how do you find the path where there is no carrion bird, where there is no vulture, where there is no microscopic bacteria that is seeking to compete with us for our space that as soon as we breathe our last breath is coming to take over our body. That's the existential struggle of life. So you guys are at a place in your life right now where you're beginning the journey. You're, you're beginning to stand in independence and you're beginning to look for a path. We're all going to travel down a path. We're all going to look for a way. Um, but Job's saying there is a path. If you can find it, it's a path. It's a path. It's a way to preserve your life in a way where no foul can find you. It's a way to live and then, yea, even to die in a way that no carrion bird can come and consume what you have built. Jesus talks about this when he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. There's a path, there's a door that accesses the, the eternal and the supernatural. And it's so, it's so profound that Jesus said, when you're laying up treasure, do not lay up treasure on the earth. Because if you, if you find a path that is carnal and that is earthly and sensual and devilish, he said, rust is going to corrupt what you build. And moth is going to come and consume these are all things that come and eat away at what we build. He said, and thieves are going to break in and steal everything that you do. But there's a path. There's a way to live. And there's a, there's a place of transcendence that if you can find that path and you can pursue it doggedly, that no moth can take, can eat away at your contribution, that no rust can break down what you've built, that no thief can break in and steal your contribution. And, you know, I, I would say that I think everybody who is, who is created by God has a spark of divinity in them that desires transcendence, that desires to make a difference in the world. If we were, I was in the room today, I would ask for the show of hands of everybody who, you know, in the deepest recesses of your heart has the desire to make a difference to make a contribution to the world, but not a contribution that's going to fade away, but a contribution that will live for eternity. And so there's a path. There is a path to travel. Now, the problem with this path is that as you pursue it, it gets more difficult. It's the nature of the path that it will require the path that Jesus took his disciples on when he started, it was a handful of men. And he said, hey, come, follow me. 
I see you fishing, but I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they started to follow him. And then as they followed him, he did miracles. And that was scintillating and exciting and, and awe-inspiring. And then he, made, he, get, he did physical miracles and caused provision, like the, the, the breaking of the, the, the loaves of uh, bread and fish. He fed the multitudes, and the multitudes began to throng him and follow him. And so the way is attractive on the front end, and people begin to follow. But as they follow, Jesus begins to say things that are more difficult and more arduous and very, very weighty. And as he makes demands of people, that require sacrifice, people get distracted. And so as Jesus, his ministry uh, ascended up to about probably seven to 10,000 people minimum. And then he began to look at the multitudes and he knew they were following for whatever reason. And he said, in one place, he said, you have to eat my flesh. You have to drink my blood. And the multitudes were shocked in one place. He said, come follow me. And one said, I've married a wife. And the other one said, I've, I've bought a field and I have to go and till it. And another one, they all had excuses. I have to go and bury my father. And he said, let the dead bury the dead. And that was so shocking to them. That required such an incredible level of consecration and commitment that they walked away sorrowfully. And so that group of seven to 10,000 people began to be winnowed down. But that's what happens when the threshing of the wheat happens. You beat the stalk and you separate the wheat from the chaff. And now you have a handful of contributors. And so Jesus looked at the disciples after the group was winnowed down to a handful of people. And he said, will you two leave? And Peter looked at Jesus and he said, you're the only one who has the words to eternal life. What he said was, you are the only one who has the keys to the eternal you're the only one who can give us access to the path where no fowl has ever seen. No vulture has ever searched out. No young lion or mature lion has ever sat by the wayside and scavenged the decomposed bodies of people who took another path and gave up. And now rust and moth is eating away at their contribution. And so they begin to follow and that path takes them upward to a place of sacrifice, takes them toward Gethsemane. It takes them toward Golgotha. It takes them toward a place where Jesus said, if any man will be my disciple, he must deny himself and he must take up his cross and he must follow after me. And as he got closer to the cross, the Bible had already prophesied the shepherd will be slain and the sheep will be scattered. He had already, it had already been prophesied. And now they get closer to the cross and they're in Herod, they're in Pilate's hall. And in Pilate's hall, there's a handful of disciples. And even Peter is thrown off of his game and he denies that he knows him and he curses and he weeps bitterly. Judas is already gone and he's already hanged himself. His, his body is already hanging in the potter's field where discarded pottery was left and his body falls off of that, that rope and his bowels gush out. And he, he represents a life left by the wayside where the carrion birds come and devour the carcass. And Peter is in this valley of decision to be or not to be. 
And at the foot of the cross, we only see John, the one that claims to be the one that Jesus loves, who laid his head on Jesus's chest and heard the heartbeat of God. The closer we get to the cross, the more sacrifice is required, the more there is to gain, but the more, the more there, there is to lose, to lose in a finite level, but to gain in an eternal spiritual level, to gain houses that we didn't build and vineyards that we didn't plant and disciples that we can make. And so we are all on a journey. Everybody in the human race that's ever lived from Adam on has taken this journey. And there are detours all along the way. There are other paths to take. But there is a path where we find the purest of gold, where we find the choicest of silver, where we can build our lives in a way to where no decomposition, no rust, no moth, no thief can come and take it from us. And so as Job is being thrust out of the nest of God and out into the broad sunlight, and he is, he's sitting in the ash heap and he's scraping his boils, he's going to have this conversation with his friends and he's going to be tested, but he's going to come out like pure gold. That's what he says. He said, I can't find God, but I know that when he's finished with me, I'm coming out like gold. And so Paul talks about this in the New Testament. He talks about how every man's work is going to be tried. And he uses some materials. He, he uses gold, silver, precious stones, a precious metal. And then he says wood, hay, and stubble. And each one of those, those natural um, elements or those natural materials, number one, each one is valuable in some way but each one must be refined. And so for everything that has value in life, for gold, there is a crucible. For silver, that for gold, there is a furnace. For silver, there's a crucible. For grapes, there is the wine press. For wheat, there is the summer threshing floor. Everything that has value is made more valuable by the process of refinement and development. And so, Scripture tells us that every man's work is going to be judged, whether it's gold, silver, precious metal, wood, hay, and stubble. And then he says it's going to be tried by fire and that the value of it will be revealed by fire. And so every one of those elements is naturally valuable all by itself. But the gold, when it's not separated from the rock, its value, its value is much less. And so the more refinement, the higher the value. The great grapes are naturally valuable, but when they're crushed and when there's a process of fermentation, the value skyrockets. And so each of our lives is being tested. It's being tried by fire and it's being revealed by fire, the value of our lives. And so as you set out on this journey, this college and career um, journey that you're on, you're going to school, you're starting jobs, you're investing in, the, in, in life, running parallel to all of your finite attempts at life is is a way is a path and it's a path of sacrifice it's it's a it's a path of loneliness at times it is a path of pain it's going to cost you something but at the end of your life when you get to the very end of your life and you have secured your family 
in the bosom of God, in the incubator of God, it, it's paradoxical to do so. You know, you might ask the question for, for Jochebed and Miriam. Pharaoh represents the carrion eater that's going to come and he's going to kill all the baby boys. Well, the question for Jochebed is, where do you hide Moses? Where do you put the thing you value the most? Where, where do you put your life? How do you secure it in a way that Pharaoh can't get to it? Well, scripture says, if you cast your bread upon the waters, you'll find it after many days. If you, if you completely sell out to the kingdom of God and you cast yourself out on the waters of the spirit, it's the one place that Pharaoh can't get to him. On the, on the waters of the spirit, in the supernatural, in the kingdom of God, that's the path. And the, the world thinks you're crazy because the world says, well, you're putting all of your eggs in that basket. Yes, I'm putting all my eggs in that basket because everywhere else Pharaoh can access it. The, the vultures and the birds and the, and the carrion eaters and the lions, they can get to it there. But the one place that the world can't get to what I'm building is in the bosom of God, is on the waters of the spirit. It's the one place Pharaoh couldn't get to Israel. He, he had them backed in a corner, but when they stepped out on the water, Pharaoh's army couldn't go in. He tried, but he was drowned. So there is a path, there is a way, and in all your searching, going to school, studying, praying, everything that you're doing, there's a path. And when you find that path, it's going to be a place of transcendence. It's going to be, it's going to require some things of you. But the more that you're willing to sacrifice to follow this way, the more benefit you're going to reap out of it. There is a direct corollary between what you're willing to sacrifice for the kingdom and what the kingdom is going to do for you in terms of saving you and redeeming you and giving you intrinsic motivation. So as you actualize the kingdom of God, you're going to have this motivation that comes up on the inside of you that's going to begin to speak to you and tell you what you're supposed to do with your life. And everything that you are building right now, your education, um, your vocation, everything that you're doing with your hands and your skill set, God intends to use that in his kingdom and for his glory. And if you will give it to him and you'll live for God 100% and you'll follow the path toward the kingdom of God, God will secure you and he will, he will hide you and protect you in a way that nothing can get to you. That's that therein lies the question. What or who can separate me from the love of God can peril can famine can adversity can none of, none of those things can separate us from the love of God when we when we find that path. Okay, so I've given you a little bit of a lesson. Um, so let's talk. I'm sure there are questions. There are things you want to know. There are things you want to ask. I'm wide open. I'm here for the duration of the tribulation. <laughs> All right. Am I unmuted? Okay. So I have a question, a question that kind of correlates with what you're saying with a little bit of what you said on the podcast with Brother Urshan. And I kind of want you to, to, to talk about that. You said on the podcast, something you had said on there was most young people are not backsliding because they don't necessarily um, not believe it or don't love God anymore, but it's basically kind of what you're saying. They don't find the path, right? 
they're not yeah. finding the path. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think people tend to think um, a traditional perspective of ministry and of, quote, the path is, and I'm going to uh, reposition my, my stuff here, so give me just a second. Um, they tend to think of the path as like they see kind of a traditional hierarchy with a preacher at the top, and they tend to think that um, success in the kingdom of God is about, about preaching um, or some sort of formal ministry. And um, I think like secular education, the perspective is so broken. What I mean is I don't just mean that it's, it's like flawed in some way. I mean that it is, it misses the majority of potential. The fact that, that God has put something on the inside of every individual that is intended to be a dynamic contribution to the kingdom of God. It may be, we have a lady in our church that is a phenomenal cook. Her name's Shirley Corey. She teaches Bible studies. She does other things, but um, she, her cooking is a ministry. It's an incredible ministry. And so she has, that's what she's passionate about. So we tend to think we use phrases like, well, the natural mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, or that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperate or desperately wicked. And who can know it? We tend to think that what I'm passionate about um, is somehow bad. And what, uh, and if I could just do what I see these people doing, then, then that's good. But my view is actually a lot, a lot broader than that. I tend to think that there is a spark of God in everybody who's ever born of a woman. The Bible, John says, um, the light that lights every man that enters into the world, that there is a spark of God in humanity. So there was a spark of God in, in Hitler and Stalin and Chairman Mao, these despots that lived that killed hundreds of millions of people, that there was a spark in them at birth. And that that fire, like a pilot light in a, in a hot water heater can be, can be lit and become this inferno, or it can be suffocated. And so I think that spark represents our intrinsic motivation. We have things as a child, we have things that we are passionate about, or that we're, we're curious about, that we're driven towards. When we get the Holy Ghost, that, whole, that, that spirit of God comes down on the inside, and it becomes an inferno. And, and so that begins to burn. It's, that's, that's, we talk about things like passion. What are, what are you passionate about? Well, we, we spend a lot of time at New Life talking about passion-based ministry, which is basically the idea. You get the Holy Ghost, you begin to pray, and you begin to seek God. And then out of your, your internal Holy Ghost, your salvific experience, you're going to become passionate about some things. And that's one of the things that you and I discussed when we were talking earlier this week, that passion is a part, but cultivation is another. So passion is the thing I want to do, but cultivation is the thing I'm good at. I have to, I have to work to become good. So I, I used the example when we were talking earlier that when I was young, I played the drums in the church and I played for a number of years. That was a skill set that I have that I actually did pretty well. Well, then the Holy Ghost started to deal with me about ministry and about especially passionate about youth ministry and, and youth development. Well, I had a burden that was on the inside. And I wasn't really talking to anybody about it. I was just playing the drums and doing my thing. Um, it would have been premature for me to quit playing the drums and jump on into some area of youth development because I hadn't cultivated the ability to lead people or to articulate ideas or to put an outline together or the, just the basic skills that you need to be a teacher or to be a preacher or whatever. 
Um, so I was faithful in that ministry for a number of years until I had cultivated my knowledge and my experience to the degree that I was ready for something more. And so then I used that as a, as an opportunity to transition out of one thing and into the other. Um, so I think there are all kinds of incredible ideas that are like little sparks in the minds of young people. I think in that room tonight, there's an, there is an, there is a plethora of brilliant ideas about how to have revival and how to impact your generation and how to, how to do things that no generation before has ever seen. But there, right now, it's just a little flame. And so there has to be a correct a level of maturation, of growth, of cultivation that brings you to a place where that potential, that idea, that concept can be actualized. And so you hear a lot about actualization today, but actualization is basically to take something that is an idea or a concept and to make it real. Well, in order to make it real, it's like that conversation about bread. You have to see the plan. You have to see the need to till the earth, to find the seed, to plant the seed, to water the seed, give it time and seasons. It's going to grow. You have to see that process all the way to, to actualization. So I tend to think that God's perspective on what can be is much, much, much broader than traditional church structure mindset is about what people can be. And I think if we can think about it in those terms and we can, we can like the key in the box that opens up the treasure, we can unlock people's potential. Right. And, and I think it's about helping uh, young people to make that transition into what they're passionate about, because it's easy to stay with what you're good at. Right. And so a lot of I believe a lot of the young people here have passions, but it's like, how do I go about that? How do I get into that passion? You know, how do I make that become, uh, you, you know, my thing, what I'm into, because that is what I'm passionate about. But how do I make that transition? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so that, and I think at the end of the day, um, that's the responsibility of the fivefold ministry. I, I said this the other day, and, and I want to be careful, but I don't like a lot of preaching. Uh, there's a lot of, so I only listen to a handful of preachers, and, I, and I, I'm trying to be kind. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but there are people that get it on a level, and your pastor is one of those people. They get it on a level where they see the panoramic plan of God. Because the, 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 the function of fivefold ministry is for the edification of the body, for the perfecting of the saints, um, for the unification of the body together in love. So there's a singular motive of God. And it's the spark that gives us, I mean, it's what makes life worth living. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that's the function of the, the fivefold ministry to help people to navigate. You need a guide. If you're going to go out into the deep and you're going to search out the mysteries of God and you're going to find this path. You need a guide that gets it on a level that they can take you places in the kingdom of God that are going to just bring you up to your mountaintop experience. Like Caleb, when he said, now give me my mountain, you can walk in high places 
that you don't have to let, you don't have to have this gravitational pull on your life that sucks you down to the pit and your life is miserable and you're depressed and you can't live for God. And you're, and you're just, you're on life, you're on spiritual life support. It's the will of God for you to have an experience that is a mountaintop experience that man, you, every day when you wake up, you're, your, your walk with God and your level of actualization is so exhilarating that it's worth doing, that it's worth your time and it's worth your passion. Because otherwise, uh, people get distracted with all kinds of other things. They get distracted with movies and sports and, yep. and, and all kinds of carnal things. I'm just going to tell you, there, you hear preachers say it and it sounds like just old people talking. There is no life like living for God. Right. When you really tap into the universal and the panoramic, you are doing things. I'm telling you, in, in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had a random dream. It was so significant that he shut down his kingdom and he said, I had a dream. I don't even know the interpretation of it. Uh, I don't even remember the dream. And he called all of his wise men together and he said, all right, you guys come and, and tell, me, tell me what the dream means. And they said, well, first you have to tell us the dream. He said, I don't remember the dream. Tell me the dream and tell me the meaning of it. Well, nobody knew what in the world they were talking about. And Daniel said, oh, king, live forever. I, I serve a God who he is the possessor of the secret places. He is the, he is the, he is the housing of the dreams, of the possibilities of the potential. I'm going to fast and pray, and I'm going to find out what your dream was, and then I'm going to tell you what it meant. I'm just telling you, living for, there's no life like this. Right. I don't care if you're in Babylon and you're in the richest empire that's ever lived and, and you have a king that, that holds all power in his fist. The life that we're living can tap in further than any amount of money, any amount of fame, success, Hollywood. That stuff's fake. It's right. an imposter. Um, so God's called young people to live at that kind of level. Right. And I want to just say right now how much I feel you're in the will of God and what you just said. Our pastor actually preached on that last night. Oh, wow. <laughs> that very thing. He just preached on, on Nebuchadnezzar and, and Daniel interpreting that dream and in that whole thing right there. So, yeah, you're on the will of God, man. I'm telling you, walking in, it's awesome. Um, Sister Alexis is here. She's the one who kind of uh, connected us. She actually has a couple questions. You want, you want to come ask them? Whatever you want to do. Okay. Um, there, you, you can see. Can you hear her? Hi. Go ahead. Okay. So, in your book, in your book, you said Satan has no creative power. He can only use the potential that God has created for his demonic actualization. Can you expound on that and explain what that means and how we know that? Yes. Um, well, there's no evidence in Scripture that Satan can create. Um, I, I do see that obviously God is a creator. We know that definitively from scripture, many examples in scripture. We know that at least on a surface level, humanity can procreate. We also know that humanity, and, and this is part of the developmental uh, chart that we use in the book. We also know that we can create things like books, intellectual property. We have a flow of creativity in our body. Uh, we have it in our mind. And we also know that because in the case with Moses, um, there it, with the 70, there is a transfer of his spirit. So human anointing seems to be, as far as I can explain it on a mechanical level, the mechanics of it, it seems to be the blending of my human spirit in the spirit of God. So that there is a signature, a creative signature that is, that is uh, poured out 
um, when, when we begin to teach and preach and minister and when we lay on, uh, we lay our hands on people, there's a transfer. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we're very careful about knowing who is laying hands on people, because we want to make sure there isn't some other transfer. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have creative capacity. God has creative capacity, but there is no evidence that Satan has creative capacity. Now, I, we, have, we can look at some examples in scripture um, when we, we see demon possession and uh, we see the, the demoniac at Gadara. There, is, there are legions of devils in him and they are speaking through his mouth. Why do they want a human vessel? Because humanity... Why, why did they, why did demons want Hitler? Well, because he had incredible power. He had, they don't have power to take life. It's obvious in the story of Job. Satan comes to God and he says, I can't touch him. He can't do anything with Job. God has to remove the hedge and further. And I'll just tell you this. You can do a lot more removing the hedge over your life than, than, God even because you have free moral agency and there's a certain degree. God never gave Satan power to take Job's life. And he certainly didn't give Satan power to occupy Job's vessel. But if you start worshiping the wrong stuff and you start bowing at the wrong, at the wrong golden calves, you're going to have something come over you and in you that is demonic. And so what that tells me, and even the conflict, the struggle that the demonic world has when, when it has human possession, it doesn't want to let go because you can do so much work for the enemy as you are possessed by an, an evil spirit. And so I think what's, what's obvious there is that without a human vessel, there would be no rape, no pillaging, no destruction, no war. It, without a vessel, Satan couldn't actualize. So he needs a vessel. Um, and the way that God has set it up in this dimension God has even made it so that God is limited to human participation. Now, I know there's going to be a theological like pause there. God is limited. Yes. Jesus with the rich young ruler, he would have made him a disciple. But the rich young ruler would not follow fully. And the Bible stops. It pauses and it says how Jesus loved him. But the man walks away sorrowfully and Jesus goes in the opposite direction. And so there's this moment where God could actualize through this man if he had chosen discipleship. But even the love of God is held captive by human will. The love could have manifest through that man, but that man loved money. So, so we see evidence of the fact that in this dimension, Satan cannot create. And I would say even if you use create, as a, as a, in its, in its specific uh, definition, um, it's creating is to build. It means to, to erect, right? Well, what Satan does is the exact opposite. He tears down. And so a human life that has destiny and purpose and potential of God, God desires to build. The problem is, is Satan takes that life and he reverses the process and he drags humanity down into the gutter and he destroys us. And he literally, when he's done with, with, with uh, Judas, he's let, his bowels are gushed out. He's left on the wayside. He's left in the potter, potter's field. And he's just, he is completely destroyed. That is the work of the devil.
the, the enemy has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so that is his actualization. Mm-hmm. Um, God, God has come. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And life is creation. Life is uh, it's procreation. It's actualization. It's creating new businesses. It's starting new ministries. It's joining Hope Corps and going on ITWs. It's doing all these kind of, these wonderful things, building churches, um, all kinds of incredible things. So that's some of the context for that conversation. And there's there's more, but I think that answered it. Yeah. Thank you. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, I know we're uh, time is limited, but I have any other questions? Anybody else? Have a question if they like that. Yeah, yeah, because he mentioned a little bit. So you did mention it a, a little bit earlier about Hitler. Can you talk a little more about that? Because I thought that was excellent. I think you uh, talked to, about that with Brother Urshan. So yeah. just kind of leave us with that, and then bring us to an end, and then we can pray and dismiss. Yeah, you know, I remember I was driving down the road. And um, as the Holy Ghost does quite often, I have a, my brain is weird. I, I mean, I admittedly so. I, I'm very abstract. I think outside the box. Um, a lot of times when I start a conversation, people say, what? Um, I was driving down the road and the Holy Ghost asked me, what about Hitler? And I was like, well, what about Hitler? And God was like, well, what did I create him for? And it's like, well, People don't sympathize with Hitler. I mean, we don't like to say, well, what was his childhood like, you know, for Hitler? People don't do that. But you have to, if you, if you stop for just a second and, and you take the mind of God, that's his son, his child. He made him to be something. God doesn't make any mistakes. God didn't make Hitler to be a monster. So like God's taking me down the road as a parent would to ask me the question, what about Hitler? How did he end up like he did? Well, I am, I am incredibly fascinated by psychology, by sociology, by an in-depth study of the human mind and the motivations and what little tiny microscopic events trigger us to do really wonderful things or, you know, horrible things. I, I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I know the history. I know what he did, but I mean, I don't know why he did what he did. So I just did a Google search and started searching out Hitler's childhood. This kid is born in a impoverished family. His, his dad is a tyrant. He's a bully. Hitler was very, okay. If you want to compare Jacob and Esau, he's more like a Jacob. He's a man of the tense. He's artistic. He's introverted. He, his dad was, was a bully. His dad was one of the, you know, the hunter, the fisher, like, bless God, my, my son's going to be a man. And not just a man in the, you know, in the sense of his sexuality, but a man in the sense of his, well, he's going to, he's going to be an industrial minded man. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe that's, maybe he's not an Esau, maybe he's a Jacob. And so Hitler wanted to pursue art and he did poorly in school. He didn't make good grades. He didn't excel in school, but he wanted to pursue art while well, his dad made fun of him and ridiculed him and just, you, you know, you sissy, what are you, what are you thinking? So he and his dad had a horrible relationship. He had a younger brother who was born as he was getting older and he loved him and he was very close to him. They had a really close relationship and his brother died 
when he was very young and it, it, it sent this introverted, um, somewhat bullied kid into isolation. He was very depressed. Um, and then his dad died. So his younger brother died, his dad died. And now he has this, this classic conflict of unresolved you know, things you would have said with a dad you didn't get along with, you didn't get to say, and not, not figuring out, not being able to figure out how to navigate life. And so his mom allowed him to drop out of school and he wanted to drop out of school so that he could go to an art institute and pursue his, his passion. He signed up for two different schools and both of them rejected him. So now you have a kid that lost his favorite younger brother, lost his dad, had a horrible relationship with his dad, felt isolated by a lack of actualization in school, was rejected by two of the schools that he was most passionate about attending. And then his country was thrust into one of the major wars in human history. And I mean, they were carrying around their paychecks and wheelbarrows. I mean, the, 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 the currency was very, the, the value of the currency was incredibly low. Um, they didn't have a whole lot of food to eat. And then his mom died of breast cancer. I mean, this is a script for how to become depressed. So he's literally homeless. He's under a bridge. Everybody that he loves has died. His country's economy is in shambles. No job, no prospects. And he's 18, 19 years old. He has become angry, bitter, recalcitrant. And then all of a sudden he gets an inheritance from his, I think his aunt passed away and he got a large inheritance. And so out from under this bridge in Germany, for the first time in his life, he has the resource to do and become whatever he wants to do. But his heart is black. It's he's bitter. He's angry. And this now this young 20s, maybe late teens kid comes out from under this bridge and he's ready to start living. Well, the rest is history. And in that moment, God said, that's what happened to Hitler. And my thought was, what would have happened if Hitler had found a youth pastor? What would have happened if he had found a church? He had found somebody that didn't take him lightly. Because as much potential as Hitler had for incredible atrocity and, and destruction, that same potential in reverse, who knows what Hitler would have been with that charisma and that political acumen. And what if he had received the Holy Ghost? What if somebody would have laid their hands on him and told him, man, God loves you. What if they would have been a father to the fatherless? And so for the first time, and I went to, I went to a theology class the next morning and I taught that lesson to my youth leaders. I said, you guys are not going to understand where I'm coming from because you've probably never heard anybody sympathize with Hitler. But as much potential as he had for destruction, he had that potential for good. 
but he got, he ended up in the wrong hands. And, um, and who knows, I don't know that there, some speculates, there's some conversation about the fact that his mom worked for a very wealthy Jewish family and that they did not pay his mom well, and that he didn't, he didn't have a whole lot as a kid and he envied that family. And that's why he became anti-Semitic. Um, there's all kinds of speculation, but the reality of it is, is that boy had the spark of God in him and life crushed it. I mean, just experience after experience. And I think at some point in his life, God reached out for him and he was too angry and too bitter and he wouldn't accept it. So man, there's a path that no foul knows. It's just it's a place of transcendence and there's another path. And um, it is littered with the bones of broken people. And you people, you're the people of God. You know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. You have access to incredible leadership resources are at your fingertips. Man, don't waste it. Take advantage of every opportunity you have. Reach out to everybody in your school, in your college, your high school, your college that is angry and bitter and hard hearted because you have no idea what kind of trajectory you are shifting for the, the world. You don't even know. Wow. Well, thank you so much for all of that. A lot of inspiring words and things that uh, we can definitely glean from and grow from. And uh, I think we just need to give Brother Collins a big hand. Thank you so much. I mean, there's so much more I want to say, but uh, we probably just continue the conversation even longer. So um, if you will, just uh, any departing words you might have and then uh, send us out with prayer. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say that I never, I know that this is remote um, and that it's different. COVID has hit everybody and we've learned some things. God is, God is, um, has shifted us in some significant ways, but I don't take this lightly. I really don't. I really believe that there's destiny um, on you, on your church, on your leadership. And uh, it's a big deal to me. I really appreciate uh, the fact that God has given me the opportunity to be connected with you, with you all. And um, I really, I'm excited about the future of the apostolic movement and the generation that's coming up. Let's pray. Mighty God in heaven, we worship you. <clears throat> we thank you for this opportunity to, to handle your word, God, to delve into the depths of the riches of your wisdom and your knowledge and your power, God. I pray that you would overshadow every student represented, God, every leader represented there, that you would take us places, God, that we couldn't have even imagined. Take us, allow us to walk in our high places, God. Anoint our lives, rebuke the works of the adversary in every life, God, and we give you glory and honor and praise for it in Jesus' name. Thank you again, Brother Collins. This means the world to us. We would love to, to possibly even do this again. This was our first event of uh, 2022 as a, the College and Career Group. So for you doing this, this means the world to us. I cannot thank you enough. And uh, thank you. God bless you. And we hope to talk to you soon. We'll do it, man. You guys be blessed. Take care. Bye.